All right, my friends, I have something to say to you. Are you ready? I've got good news for you. A king is born. I mean, a king is born. And his kingdom has begun. Maybe that's, oh, I'm sorry, just brace yourself. Maybe that's why we have so many candles at Christmas Eve service. You know, you got to, like a birthday cake. I, I, I told you to brace yourself. I did, sometimes, and I never write one joke down. But I just, they just come to me like that one. It's like inspiration. Jesus of Nazareth came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, and he, and he said, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, what did this mean to him and to his audience? It meant something because they were expecting something. Everybody say they were expecting something. Much of their expectations were informed by Old Testament prophecy, primarily the, the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. And if we, as we have this season, are, are, we have been trying to do this. If we can see and feel their expectations, then our expectations will be better informed. Our expectations will be stronger, they will be deeper, they will be more clear. Hopefully our expectations will become more vibrant and more robust. Why is that important? Why should we stir the hot coals of our expectations? Because the danger, friends, is not that somehow we will all just abandon our faith but that we will simply settle for a lesser, more sterile, more mediocre, less significant version. Our experience of Christianity is informed by, and it is, it is affected by, it is energized by, and it is sometimes even determined by our expectations. So let's see, again, this morning, this Christmas Eve morning, let's see if we can crank up our expectometer. You ready? All right, four of you are. I'm ready. Okay. In particular today, let us believe and behold that the babe in the manger is not just cute. He is king. Isaiah chapter 9 is our text for this Christmas season, again, because Isaiah influenced much of Christ's audience's expectation of the kingdom of God. We've chosen to camp out in Isaiah, but because there's so much in Isaiah, we, I, I originally, I, I really did. I had like 17 different passages, and I was trying to figure out how I was going to cover it. I said, ah, forget it. Let's narrow it down. Let's stay to one specific passage. So we're just in Isaiah 9. The truth is, we're going to just look at the last two verses of this passage, and the truth is, again, after looking at it, I thought, Lord, I could have done all. Well, originally, this was supposed to be a five-week series, but uh, we missed one. If you missed, a, that was Communion Sunday. We just felt like in being lost in the Lord's presence, and, and that's good. So here today, verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah chapter 9. And this may be, to some of you, the most familiar in terms of what you're about to hear. Here, here remember, what he has told us already is that, a, that, that something was going to happen that 
the, there would be no more gloom, that the Lord was going to bring, a, a light was going to burst in, uh, into the region that was going to begin in Galilee, and that the people who sat in darkness would, would see a great light, and that then they would have, it says they would have reason for great joy, and that, uh, uh, then that, and that there would become a, a deliverer, a, a one who would come to save all of these things were going to happen, but, but here is the crux. Here's the fulcrum of the whole text. Here it is. Because of, because of this. Somebody say, because of this. For, verse, verse 6, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no, no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Again, verse 6 begins with this word for. This is the, the leverage the whole passage rests upon. Upon what? Upon who is referred to here. This king is the cause for light. He is the reason for joy. He is the one who breaks the burdens laid upon us. He is the one who breaks the weapon formed against us. He is the one who has defeated the enemy who seeks to oppress us. He is the saving one. He is the king. Who is this king? Isaiah says, he's a child. A son. For unto us, and I, I, of course I hear it in the King James, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. You got to hear this well. A child will be born to us. A son. Someone say a child, a son. This is the prophetic literature is using poetic redundancy on purpose. A child, a son. Isaiah sees. You tell. You got to. Oh boy. I've tried to tell people we don't apologize for our enthusiasm at Heritage. I. And it, people often say to me, hey, Dad, are you excited? And if you know me, I'll say, not really. Not really. Not, you know, I'm not, people, are you excited to do something? Not, not really. But, but if you open the book, <laughs> I have a hard time containing myself. So uh, it's true. So Isaiah says all these things are going to happen. There's going to be a light that comes. There's going to be a reason for joy. Someone's going someone's to break that yoke. Someone's going to break that rod that's been oppressing you. They're going to they're shatter the scepter of the oppressing one. And he says all this is going to happen because, because he said, for unto us, everything else is already in the, in the prophetic, uh, in the prophetic hist historical perspective. Everything else, he says, is happening. A light is here. This is here. But then he says because, all of this is because someone is coming. He said, Isaiah's message is this. Somebody's coming. For unto us a, chi a child will be born. A son is coming. Isaiah looks at the circumstances around him and says, this isn't right, but somebody's coming. 
It's like Bala- the prophet Balaam in, in Numbers 24, 17, when he, when he stood upon that hillside and he looked at two million Israelites crossing below him and he, and he opened his mouth to curse them and he opened his mouth, but out of his breath when he saw these two million Is- Israelites marching across the desert, all he could say was, I see him. So I say, hey, Balaam, there's two million. No, no, he said, I, that's, that's not what I see. I see him, but not now. He said, I behold him, but not near. In other words, somebody's coming. And then, and then Balaam says, a star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. A star, a scepter, a sun. And they expected that the kingdom of God would come through a child, through a son born of a woman. The birth, Merry Christmas, stockings, wonderful Jesus, Christmas hats, okay. But listen, the birth narratives in the Gospels, the Christmas stories are not there to provide a precious moments aspect to the gospel. I know that they function that way. They give us wonderful manger scenes. I, I, I love that. It's pretty. It's, it, it makes for wonderful stuff. The birth narratives in the gospels are there to affirm several important truths. Both of these, both Matthew and Luke, tell a story that frames Christ's birth in human terms as happening in obscurity and unnoticed by humanity. Now, John doesn't include a birth narrative, but John tells us he came to his own and his own received him not. They didn't recognize him. This is the story of Christ. He came, but nobody recognized him. Why? Because he came as one of us. He came in obscurity. In human terms, he was unrecognized and unnoticed. But know this, in both gospel accounts, in the birth narratives, they both go out of their way to let us know that in human terms, he was unnoticed. But in cosmic terms, he was recognized and revered. (laughs) And secondly, and perhaps most crucial to the story, the birth narratives of this, we're talking about a son, a child. Why does Isaiah tell us this? Isaiah, a son, a child. Because... Scripture affirms that God became fully man in order to fully redeem man. This isn't about Christ being cute, but rather to emphasize Christ's right as a natural born citizen of earth, born of man to redeem man and rule the world. He's got the birth certificate to say, I have the right. He came as one of us, in order to save all of us. (laughs) And finally, it should be said that God redeeming man by becoming fully man underscores the value of humanity. Christmas is the perfect time for us to honor the incarnation, God's affirmation of humanity, and take time to value one another. The flesh and blood next to you is valuable primarily, yes, made in the image of God, but also God reaffirmed. He has no interest in destroying that flesh. He has no interest in setting it aside, but to redeem all of it. In becoming fully human, God revealed once again his value upon humanity. 
human life is beautiful to God. We honor, we worship Him by honoring and valuing one another. So go ahead, exchange a gift, share a card, give a hug, enjoy one another. It's an act of worship. And finally, it should be said that God redeeming us <laughs> cause, by becoming a child, we have to ask, you know, what child is this? He be, who's coming? A son, a child. But what child is this? What is so special about him? Well, Isaiah says that the government will rest on his shoulders. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? What does that mean, that the government rests? That, that literally means that the government itself is going to rest, that he is not going to be the head of the government per se, but the government is going to rest right on him. He's not going to take charge of something else, but he's going to be the source of rule. Another very valid translation, a couple of other translations say actually say it differently. Both of them equal, but this one might sound a little, this one says, dominion will be on his shoulders. He's not just cute. He's a king. The English Standard uh, Version Study Bible provides this meaning to this passage. This child is the invincible figure striding across the world stage, taking Gracious command. He's not just cute. He's a king. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament says that this son is, quote, appointed heir of all things, through whom also God made the world. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. This king upholds all things by the word of his power. He's not just cute. He's a king. Jesus is king. What is this child's name? The name of a king was supposed to be a good indicator. It was auspicious of his reign. Many times kings were given certain names that were, they were named after a trait or they were named after a characteristic of God and it was, and they they, they were kind of named, it was supposed to be auspicious. It was supposed to describe what kind of the way he would be. Meaning the royal name just wasn't who they were, but it was how they rule. The royal name wasn't just who they were, it was how they would rule. And again, oftentimes kings were named after a characteristic of God, but in this case, the king is named God. <laughs> a lot of times you're like, God does this, God does that. This one, his name is God. Well, listen. Isaiah tells us that his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Everybody say Wonderful Counselor. I know that sounds like he who giveth big hug. But wait. Counselor. Does that mean... The great advice giver? Yes, but that's aiming way too low. Counselor in this context, because of all that Isaiah has said, actually would mean strategist. 
It means one who would provide guidance and wisdom. Specifically, military guidance and wisdom. (laughs) He's not just cute. But this word wonderful is more than just superlative adulation. Not just all wonderful. This word wonderful, it does mean extraordinary, but there's even more than that. This word is, in the, that word wonderful in the Hebrew is pele, P-E-L-E. And in Hebrew, that word is only, someone say only, it is only used of God and the works of God. It is never once attributed to a, to a person, to, a, to the works of man. For instance, in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 11, that's a, this is a, it says, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? That's just one example. In other words, this word is only attributed to God. And it is, and this, and so, but this word, wonderful counselor, is attributed to this king. He is the wonderful counselor. Jesus will be to us an infallible source of guidance and an inexhaustible supply of wisdom. Jesus is king. His name is also Mighty God. Won't everybody say Mighty God? That's his name. Now, loosely, loosely transliterated, that would sound like El Gabar. El, of course, means the mighty God, the strong God, creator. It's the first thing we receive. Genesis 1 is El. In the beginning, El, the creator. And that's his name. Jesus is El. (laughs) He's not just cute. He's creator. The mighty God, the strong God. That's Jesus. Someone say the strong God. I'll say the mighty God. But then there's this other word, gabar. That word means powerful warrior. It means valiant one. This is, this is, this is the closest, you've got to just listen to me now. This is the closest, I, the closest thing we have to this word is superhero. That's that, friends, that's the implication. Jesus is the mighty God, the powerful one, the valiant one. That's Jesus. Jesus is the mighty. He's not faster than a speeding bullet, but he is brighter than darkness and he's stronger than death. With deliverance at his word and healing in his hand. He is the rescuer, he is the deliverer, he is the mighty and powerful warrior come to save us. Now, I, I, I get ready, Bob. I, I love music about the manger scene. Everybody does. Most of the lyrics, if you listen to them carefully, because they're so familiar, you almost don't pay attention anymore. But if you listen to the lyrics about the, the, the manger scene, most of them are bold and make vast claims about what was happening there. Get ready, Ben. But if we could, 
if I could invite you to rehear the music of the manger scene in a different way, maybe the way I hear it, is that fair? This is personal? This is the music that I hear at the manger scene. I hope that you could get a more dramatic understanding of what really happened there. Here's what I hear. That's what I hear. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> it makes me very happy. A king is born. His kingdom has begun. Jesus is God who is mighty to save. Now you might think Dav's just being funny, and I'm not. I cried. I played that in my office over and over again. I added it to my praise list. It is. It's right next to it. Anyway, it's right there. It opens it up. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, and Isaiah says, eternal, in the NASB, eternal father. As father, it tells us that he is our benevolent protector and provider. As father, it tells us that he is our benevolent protector and provider. He will provide, he will protect, and he will discipline like a father. They hadn't made sitcoms yet in Isaiah's time. Sitcoms that spend all of their energy mocking the male figure and making fun of dads. It hadn't been culturally acceptable simply to mock the male figure as the chief end of every joke. The word father has a, is a two-way street. Most important, I think, for everybody to understand is that he is the protector, he is the provider, he is faithful, he is benevolent, he is the caregiver. It also invites, elicits, requires a response of respect. He ain't, it doesn't say the eternal old man. He ain't your old man. He's your father. And he, as the eternal one, that means he is always, everywhere, a father. He will never cease being a father. Isaiah also says that this king is the prince of peace. <laughs> You might say, oh, finally, something more on the cute side. Don't answer yet. 
Prince here is actually a military rank. It means commander or chief captain. So the prince of peace, the peace described here is a peace that is secured because of the victory of the prince. This is peace as a result of the vast might and dominion and valor previously mentioned. Only the mighty God could be the prince of peace. So the people experience peace and prosperity because their invincible king destroys their enemies. That doesn't mean your neighbor or the person that offended you. Do ne- never, never, never take this out outside of the context. You have an enemy. He goes about like a roaring lion. He is defeated. In the New Testament, this peace is completely understood. It helps. We are, we are shown that this peace is a, is, is a result specifically of Christ's triumph over sin and Satan. That's your enemies. Not your Not your parents, not your spouse, not your in-laws who you will see soon. (laughs) Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. For in him all the fullness of the deity, deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head, and and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcised, circumcision made without hands in the, the removal of the, of the body of flesh by the circumcision of, of, of Christ. Excuse me just a minute. Having been buried with him in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of the decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through the cross. This Prince of Peace has totally obliterated the record of your debt and sin. He has wiped it away and nailed it to the cross, and in so doing has made a spectacle, has made a fool of public shame of your enemies. He has defanged the devil. Shame the devil. Jesus is king. How long will he reign? What will be the tenure and nature of his reign? Isaiah says there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. In other words, friends, what began will never end. Let's say it together. What began will never end. His dominion will increase without end. So will his peace. Here, again, peace is not only a lack of war, but it is the prevailing presence of well-being and of safety and of plenty. 
Another scholar writes that this title promises that this king will bring wholeness and well-being to individuals and to society. Which is why the angels sang, on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. One study Bible phrased it this way, the empire of grace will forever expand. And listen, every moment will be better than the last. That's what they were expecting. When Jesus said, the kingdom is here, this is what they heard. This is what expectations were met of Christ's announcement. Time to stir up your expectometer, friend. Isaiah continues and says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, meaning that this king is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. That covenant is told to us in 1 Chronicles 17, verse 11. Uh, the Lord says to David, when your days are fulfilled, that you, mu- that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you, who will be one of your sons. I will establish his kingdom. He will build for me a house. Say, that's us. And I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it away from those who, him who was before you. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. Jesus is king. Isaiah says he will establish his throne and uphold it with justice and righteousness. This king will be different than every other king Israel has ever known. But no matter how great they were, they always had, there was always high places. There was always something that went south. They always blew it somewhere. But not this king. He will, he will establish it. His, his throne will be forever in place, and it will be a place of justice and righteousness. He will judge rightly, and he will do what is righteous from then and forevermore. Jesus is king. His, he, a king has been born, his kingdom has begun, and friends, his kingdom will never end. Finally, friends, how will all this happen? How? Why will all of this happen? Isaiah says it will be the zeal of the Lord of hosts that will accomplish this. Why would God do all of those things? Why is all of this going to happen? Why are we here today? Because the zeal of the Lord, what that means is the, it is the Lord's intense devotion to and love for his people that will accomplish this why are we here today because god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but will have eternal life by this the love of god was manifest in us that god sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, the mighty, the Lord almighty will accomplish this. Aaron, would you come? Ushers, would you get ready? We're going to gather around the Lord's table. Friends, it is accomplished. It is finished. A king has been born. His kingdom has begun. Jesus is king. Would you all say Jesus is king? One more time. Say it with me. Jesus is king. I'm going to invite you to 
just bow your heads as we begin to wait upon the Lord. The ushers are going to, in just a few moments, are going to come around. They're going to serve you the emblems of communion. Just hold on to them until we can share them together. And then we will close in song and prayer and send you on your way home in the presence of the Lord. Ushers, come. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now in this moment to celebrate a Christ who is not just cute, but is king. Savior of the world. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Ushers, we serve the people. Two thousand years have come and gone since you were born. Still you are here and live inside my grateful heart. Savior, I was made to love you. Savior, I sing, I adore you. I I adore you, Lord. I adore you. I adore you, Lord. Oh, I adore, I adore you. I adore. I adore you, I adore you, Lord. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks, saying, this is my body which is broken for you. That body was prepared very specifically. God become man, becoming one of us in order to save all of us. Lord, we give you thanks today that you did not come as conqueror, but as servant. king who would lay down his life for the sins of man in order to save us all. We thank you, Lord, that there's healing, there is hope, there's restoration, there is real help in the name of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you began a kingdom that's, that has not ended, it has not eased up. There is no recession, regression, is only increase. Father, we thank you for the body of the Lord Jesus who was broken for us. And today we receive that body with gratitude. We feed by faith on the life of Christ. We just receive it together.
After supper, he took the cup in like manner, saying, And this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Scripture says this is the cup that will be poured out as a ransom. <laughs> a ransom. An overpayment to pay, to redeem, to completely buy back, to rescue you and deliver you. This son. Our redeemer, our rescuer. <laughs> we give you thanks today, Lord, for this new covenant. Help us to live in greater experience of it, even as we live in greater expectation of its promises. In Christ's name, let's receive. Let's stand together. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Christ the Lord, for He alone, for He on a little bit so people can see on their way out. Merry Christmas. Be kind to one another. Bless one another.